0: So there we have it. We have uh, southern Alberta, or or not? It's hard to say. I guess all I'm trying to do right now is show that we have a lot more in common with the rest of the world than sometimes we like to let ourselves think, and uh, that makes it that makes it uh, maybe we can relate a little easier when we see them. Now, uh, I'm sorry. What's our friend in Pincher Creek's name? Lisa, Lisa, sorry. Okay, Lisa, is that right? Okay, so um, no, we're not trying to make Southern Alberta sound like a terrible place. I'm just trying to show that there's a relationship between the two, the two, uh, two areas. Now we have uh, the dam here, and and you know we we have to remain globally competitive. We have to be able to sell our products. We have to be able to uh, to leverage our advantages and disi- and. Uh, Mitigate our disadvantages, keep them to a, a minimum. So why not use our water here to uh, grow crops that are going to get us the most amount of money? We've got water, right? See, it's right there. I can see it. So why not why not use it to grow in these irrigated farmlands um, and make some money? And you know, then we can tax it and have a really great economy. the The problem is is that these methods of irrigation, irrigated farming. Are not necessarily sustainable, so sorry, just back to this camera are, are not necessarily sustainable so what what does that mean? What happens if the soil salinity increases in our crops on these irrigated farmlands? What happens if uh, we lose soil nutrients because they're being washed away because of irrigation and in fact the the soil is the size of it is the, the depth that you can use for farming is decreasing and and that, that's a big problem. So why aren't we growing crops that are, that are sustainable in southern Alberta? Well, as we were talking about before, we have to remain globally competitive. We have to be able to sell, sell, sell our crops on the market and get a good price. Far, we, we can't afford to have farmers necessarily all poor, right? So why is, it that we're sell, why is it that we're doing this? We know that like there's so much evidence that suggests that, that these kinds of things are bad. So why do we do it? Does anyone have any thoughts about that why Why is it that we're growing these crops that are not that are not meant for arid regions?
1: I would guess that it's because those crops sell just net the highest price so that if you're going to do the same amount of work for for two different grains, for example, uh, effectively the same amount of work as far as uh, tilling and and sowing, that your your yield might as well net you more money with, I mean, if you can choose between two crops that are essentially the same, why not take the one that's actually going to put more money in your pocket?
0: Sure, exactly. And that seems to be what the the common logic is. So there's, there's some greater globalization processes that are contributing to this factor. Um, you know, we're, Alberta isn't just a microcosm of, of the world, and it's and it's not just that it's it's insulated from what happens in the rest of the world too. Everything that happens outside uh, affects us, and things like free trade uh, make make that possible. So, when we talk about when we talk about trade, what what is trade all about? Like, how how does this work? Well, we know that we're part of NAFTA. And uh, we have these regional trading blocks. So what happens in Alberta can also happen in the, sorry a second, what happens in Alberta is is also something that's happening in the rest of the world. So if our grain or whatever it is we're growing in southern Alberta is put on on the global market and we're selling that grain for a particular price, that price is the price that we're paying within our market and if our market is the size of north america then we're competing with farmers around north america too so we have we have something here called the uh, we have something called the world trade organization so who governs all of the trade in the world and it is pardon me the united states, the united states maybe i don't know but the the world the world the world trade organization is headed up by an american so I guess we could say that there's, there's that aspect to it. I'm just trying to find my page number here, 166. There we have it. We have the World Trade Organization. Defenders of the World Trade Organization. Okay. So Defenders of the World Trade Organization argue that it does include an exception. Oh, where am I going here? So we have we have the World Trade Organization. When I'm going through this literature here, I keep seeing this, world call, this word called gat. Gat. I didn't really know what that meant when I first saw it. And then I saw another word. Here it is. Now you're, now you're getting it. Called <laughs> GATT <laughs> Called GATT So what is this all about? What is, what is this all about? So we have the General Agreement on Trade and Services. The General Agreement on Trade and Services, water is also Considered a service according to the General Agreement on Trade and Services. And we also have something called see, like GATS. And I'm looking over here at GAT, And this means General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. Now, <clears throat> so this, this, uh, this is in blue gold. And what is it that determines whether a product is a good or a service? So we have the World Trade Organization. And we have the World Trade Organization, which has all these rules about how trade in the world is supposed to work. So we have the general agreement on trade and tariffs, which determines how goods in the world are traded. And then we have the Gen- general agreement on trade and services, <coughs> excuse me, which determines how services are traded. Now, what's the difference? Well, I guess the difference is that, that this book is a good. It's tangible. It's right here. And that's what you can, you can measure. It, it has an assigned value. And that value is determined by supply and demand and then we assign the price. A service, on the other hand, is something that, that is uh, not necessarily tangible, but it can, be, it can be measured. So your banking services, the, the ability to have a bank account and have this electronic money there, that's a service. Or having your utilities delivered to your house or your telephone, these are services. The the good would be the telephone, the service would be the telephone service provider, like Rogers or whatever. So is water a good or service? Is water something that you can buy and sell? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But according to the General Agreement on Trade and Services, the GATS, it says that Water is considered a service. There's hundreds of types of water services listed in this category. Among them, fresh water services, sewer services, treatment of wastewater, nature and landscape protection, construction of water pipes, waterways, tank water t- or tankers, groundwater assessments, irrigation dams, water transport services, just to name a few of the services that are offered that are listed under GATS. And under GAT, Uh, water is also a, water is a good that can be traded, but there's some rules about this. First of all, if first of all, in order for it to be a service or a good, it has to be in the pub, It has to be in the private sector. So, if we have. If we have the if we have the World Trade, Trade Organization, which Canada subscribes to, we are a member of the World Trade Organization in good standing. I might add, and we have. Joined on to these rules of of trade and services and of trade in in goods. So the rules say that water is a service, but it has it's it's water is a service and water is a good. But right now it's under the public realm, right? We get it for free. We only pay a very like, I think a few dollars just to have access, and that's because our public provider in the city covers that cost for us, or sorry provides that service. That means we we don't buy our water in Lethbridge from. Yeah, we, we pay through taxes or, or whatever the case is, but the, the water we get in Lethbridge is, is essentially a common asset. We all own part of the water company in Lethbridge. If we live in Lethbridge, we own Lethbridge Water Works, and we are entitled to a water access through it. But if it's privatized, uh, that means we have to pay for a, a, a premium for it. We pay by because based on supply and demand. So... Because Canada signs on to the General Agreement on Trade and, and Tariffs, and because Canada sign, like in, is part of the WTO, we're obligated to follow the rules of the WTO. Now, we all know about softwood lumber, right? Like, we know that the United States, there's a big conflict about this, about how we uh, apparently subsidize our, our, our timber exports. And we went to the World Trade Organization, and we said, hey, the Americans are uh, putting a tariff on on this good that we're selling to them and they're wrong. They they can't do that. We're supposed to have free, liberal, open trade according to the WTO. So what happens is uh, we went to the WTO and we said, where is it? There we go. We said, I'm trying to keep this. Oh, it moves a lot. Can we all read that? Perfect. We said that uh, we had a problem with it. So what we did is we went to the WTO trade panel and we said, hey come help us out here, the Americans are taking all of our money and they're, they're uh, screwing us, so what do we do?" Uh, and the trade panel went, to, went, back to, went back to Canada here and said that, that uh, we were justified and the WTO ruled in our favor and said that the Americans were, ex, were exploiting us or taking advantage of us or whatever the case is. The problem is, is that these trade tribunals are done in private, we don't know what's happening. Now, if you and I have a problem, and you and I have a conflict, We go to court, worst case. And that's how we try and resolve it. But anyone in the world who wants to come and sit in in our trial or our case can watch it. It's public. It's open to scrutiny. It's it's part of the public realm. Whereas these trade tribunals are in private, closed doors. No one has access to them. So their rulings have a huge impact on billions of dollars of goods and services. But they aren't necessarily accessible. And the process that they followed isn't open. And by the way, they aren't judges. They're just you know, trade experts. So what does that mean if there's a problem with water? And what does that mean if there's a trade dispute in water? And who, who are the people making these decisions? Now, I don't know. Maybe they're really great people and they know about it. But our democracy is set up in a particular way. And the law, and by being part of the WTO, it's bypassing this process. So what does this have to do with water? I'm talking about rules. So, um, there's a few rules that we need to know about, and probably one of the most important ones is something called the investor state mechanism. So we have the investor state mechanism right here. And the investor state mechanism gives transnational corporations the unprecedented right to sue national governments directly. So if they have a problem, if uh, Monsanto has a problem with seeds, and the Alberta government bans Monsanto seeds for because they're they're a bad crop or they're not nutritious or whatever the case is. Like they, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying that they could be. And let's say hypothetically a provincial government bans them, then Monsanto can sue the United sue the Canadian government for it. And in fact, it's it's happened in the past. Now these are also, I said, adjudicated in secret by commercial arbitration panels. So the investor state mechanism puts multinational corporations on the same level as governments. Now, because we're part of the WTO, we're obligated to follow the rules. We're required to follow the rules. Otherwise, if we don't follow the rules, then the United States can say, or whoever can say, they're not following the rules, the WTO says they're not following the rules, and that's one of the rules, then we can have uh, sanctions against Canada for that or whoever. And imagine if you're a small country like Albania or something like that, and you're being sued by the United States or Monsanto, who has more money than the entire GDP of the country. So what does this mean? Now in my research, I am proposing that this means that we talked about before how, in, in uh, previous rulings, that corporations earn the status of being a person under the law. Now corporations, that they're people, they have the same status as nations. So not only does a multinational corporation have the same power as me in a, in a Canadian courtroom, but on the international stage, they have the power of a nation. I can't sue the United States government in the WTO trade, trade tribunal. I can't do that. None of us can do that, unless some of us are board members of a major multinational corporation. But we can't do that. So in that respect, they have more power than us. And they are um, above us in that respect. Now, maybe that's a good thing because they're they're they they have our best interests in mind. But beyond that, uh, what does this have to do with water? I just wanted to cover a few of these rules because they're really important. I talked about the investor-state mechanism where you can be where they can sue. Now, here's something else: national treatment rule. So. All foreign-based water corporations will be given national treatment and most favored nation status, a state of affairs that would require any government that participates in the regime to extend to them the best type of treatment it gives to any investor, domestic or foreign. That means you can't discriminate against two corporations. You can't just because of their nationality. So if you're an American firm operating in Canada and vice versa, because we're both part of the WTO, we have to be treated the same in the two countries. And I guess that makes sense if you're trying to gain the same access to markets. But what does that mean if you're a publicly
1: traded firm? Sorry, there's a question. Turn it off. Yeah. <clears throat> is that because that, that, that distinction of, being, of treated, being treated equally, whether you're a, a, a national corporation of that, of that nation or foreign, is that because they're members of the WTO or because we're members of NAFTA? Um, There's once or twice that you've said WTO, where I wondered whether it's made me think of all the other members of the WTO that are not members of, for example, a free trade agreement, where I would imagine that that protectionist uh, policy could rule and and you could give quite a national advantage to your domestic corporations and industries.
0: Yeah. Uh, Can we just go to this for a second? So I hope I can answer this here tough question. Uh, Like all regional trading agreements, it conforms to the WTO, uh, World Trade Organization. Uh, NAFTA does, yeah. And uh, it's by rules. But it goes beyond those rules. So yeah, that's what you're saying, is that there are some rules that are part of NAFTA that aren't part of the WTO. But these rules here, the investor state mechanism, uh, is part of NAFTA and national treatment is part of NAFTA. So yeah, it's good to make that distinction. Very important distinction. No, they both are. They're both part of NAFTA. Yeah. So the United States government can can sue. But there's also a movement uh which was which was quashed for now called the Free Trade Area of the Americas, uh which was uh largely shaped by NAFTA rules. Uh so it's it's essentially the same thing, but it would encompass all of North America and it goes beyond beyond some of these rules. Yeah, in South America, Central America. Uh it would include Southern Cone common market. Uh, Mercosur, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's these rules that apply to any product once it's traded. So, what does that mean if our water? So, right now, the good news is, the good news is, is that these are protected, uh, publicly traded, publicly traded. Uh, or, sorry, excuse me, public assets like water, healthcare, uh, these types of things, uh, universities, right now they're protected. So they can't be, they can't be, mo- they can't, uh, the private sector can't come in and start delivering healthcare in Canada because we already have a system in place. Unfortunately, the Canadian government opt- opted out of the health part, which we talked about last week, but we haven't said anything about water yet. So if water becomes private, If water becomes private under something called the market access rule, another rule of NAFTA, or sorry, of the WTO actually, then then these services can be face the scrutiny of of the international trade body too, which means that we have to allow everyone into our market, and we have to give them all fair access and treat them like every every other firm that operates in the economy. So we can't just say, Canadian companies, you're allowed to serve as water. Everybody has to be able to do it. It has to be open. And you can't just have this partial privatization. It has to go all out. So, Can
2: I just make an observation. Yeah. And we don't have that much more time left. Um, but while you're talking about if it goes private, then this and this happens. And, and we, we talk about it in such a matter-of-fact way. Um, but if water is private, if it's a commodity, what happens if you can't afford that commodity? I mean, water is one of the basic things that you need to live. In fact, we are mostly water. We're mostly made up of water. Uh, it's, it's the essential, probably the most essential material ingredient of life. So. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was asking the question, and I think uh, we we would be well served to to focus on it. Is water a human right, or is water a commodity? If it's a commodity, it begs the question, well, those that can afford it can have life. Does that mean that those who can't afford it cannot have life? Uh, And it gets back to this same uh, type of issue which we were talking about last week, um, health care. Is it a human right? If you're sick and you need medical care and you can't get that medical care, then you can't have your, your life. Your life disappears. Uh, your life is exterminated. Your life is extinguished. So this idea of transforming the basic necessities of life into commodities, which we do all the time, you know, housing, uh, it, it still it, it raises this fundamental issue: do we understand water as a as a basic human right, or are we going to allow the commodification to just continue proceeding uh, and provide the currency for a new a new element of capitalism, the liquidity, if you like, for a new element of capitalism?
0: Exactly. And what's happening is that the WTO and our our government, is saying that water is a need. And there's a big distinction here. Our government says water is a need. That means we all need water to, to, to do whatever it is we do with it. So, but what does that mean in, in terms of the law? It doesn't mean that everyone should have it. It means that, that that need could be filled by the private sector. That means that the need could be filled through, through, uh, through other means other than governments. So is water a universal human right? universal human rights, which is a very powerful term, but is that something that is meant for everybody with unhindered access? Or does that mean that that can be filled by supply and demand? Um, I also agree that water is supposed to be a human right, but this is just playing devil's advocate. Do you think if water were to become a, a commodity and it was something that people could sell and regulate, Do you think that would be better for the environment? Would we we use less of
2: it?
0: That's a good point, and I'm I'm not going to answer it quite yet. But what is what is uh, there's this argument out there that supply and demand by by charging a premium for it, people will people will uh, use less. So I guess it kind of makes sense. Like I, if gas goes to $16 a a liter, I'm probably going to use less, right? But what about water? So what what does that have to do with his question? Can someone maybe answer that?
3: Um, I saw, oh, I don't want to be on television. Okay, Um, There was a lecture recently on water that I saw, at least a a portion of. And I can never remember the lecturer's name. He came down Mm -hmm. from the U of A. Thank you very much. His name was Schindler. And he made a very good point that I think most people aren't even aware of in any way, shape, or form, we treat so many gallons of water per capita per day in each, whatever it is, municipality, city, region, whatever, however the treatment system is set up, and it goes through our taps, and we treat it to the point where it's drinkable. It's 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 okay to drink. We're not going to get sick from it, but all we do with it is do our dishes or wash our clothes or... Whatever. And yet we go to the expense and the trouble, for lack of a better term, of treating so much water to the point of drinkability. And we don't even drink it. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Maybe some oil on the fire. I think that um,
1: well there's a couple of things. Number one is that if you were to put if you were to have two systems running one for example because i think i'd still want to know that my dishes are being washed in clean water frankly okay but there's and that I'm wa- clean
3: and there's drinkable
1: so they can't hear so if you don't have okay, your- okay. That's, oh, i can on. just repeat what oh, so okay clean and drinkable but i mean arguably there's there's water that's going through your toilet that doesn't need to be either right but in terms of cost in terms of like plumbing first of all because of the way the system's already set up is that if you have a single source of water that can be can run through any tap, then you only need one inline to the house or to whatever. I mean, you only need one water tower, you only need to supply in terms of like common pressure. I mean just logistically, I don't I, I don't know that I don't know that we could we could um, retrofit our system to have more than one system of water. I mean I agree in principle that that but I just don't think that would happen. Like we should have a separate water at least for the toilet. Because that's that's just thousands of gallons, millions of gallons that just never needed to be treated to, to, to you know to whatever degree at all. I mean frankly, it could have been salt water um, except for the corrosion and stuff but the but certainly there could have been two systems set up initially. I, I don't think though um, getting back to what what you said before John about whether people would use less, I think it's it's, it's, it's incredibly classist to even consider. That that profit would uh, discourage use because the people that we're talking about that wouldn't have access are not in that. They're not overusing right now, whether it's gas or water. They're they're not in that issue. It's people that have the luxury of of whether they'll. Um, are you just cutting me off?
2: I'm I'm just getting in line. All
1: right. Um, <laughs> the 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 people that have um, people that have the luxury. Basically, the middle class that have the luxury of having a second vehicle or not. Yeah. I mean, the basically the same. I've thought the same with the price of gas, with where it's gone. Will that discourage? Let's be honest. The middle class from driving less or taking this vehicle instead of the SUV. Fine, but for the people that aren't in that issue, that only have one vehicle and and absolutely need it, those people, those people break. I mean, that, that there's a, there's a whole group yeah. of people out there that if and when you're talking about water, I mean. It's not a question of whether they're filling their swimming pools with it. And so I think to talk about these things, we have to remain remember that we're talking from a class. We have to remember a class perspective because it's yeah. because these, these fundamental things, there are people that don't have the choice at all. Yeah.
0: There, there's always going to be someone somewhere who's driving an SUV as long as oh, yeah, you sure. have access to fuel.
1: Have there's always money. someone
0: who's probably going to have a pool in their backyard, provided they them. have the means is what you're saying. Okay.
1: regardless of whether they fill it with individual bottles of water. I mean, there are people that have more money than God, but we don't need to worry about whether those people end up with access. It's
0: the other thing I wanted to say before we moved on is we're talking about price, but the price is often misunderstood as it being value, right? What is the value of water? What is the value of gasoline? What is the price? There's a differentiation, which I'll talk about. Dr. Hollis, do you want to say something?
1: I did it twice. I think you're out now.
2: On, on the issue of uh, commodifying water as perhaps being a, uh, a means of lessening the use of water or making it seeing that it's treated more preciously, more carefully, um, there's another element to this where uh, those who are making money from the sale of water, the commodification of water, Uh, Can actually um, benefit the more water is seen to be polluted. In other words, uh, if uh, the Old Man River is uh, seen to be polluted, and there's some question about whether you might get sick or you might, over a long period of time, undermine your health by drinking water directly from the tap, that's going to be an incentive to to purchase water. So, you know, developing a whole constituency, a whole uh, financial constituency, who actually benefit from the deterioration of water. You know, that, that too needs to be considered. And we, we are getting into the final um, stages of the, the class here. Um, you, know, you think of southern Alberta, how many people are here, however many number of people are here, uh, there's much more stress on the water system coming from the domesticated animals, feedlot alley uh the beef industry the the hog industry, um, and uh, what what are, what, what, what are what, what's the ecological significance of that in relationship to our rapidly diminishing water supply because this is David Schindler is making it clear that global warming is connected to uh, less water going through our system and I, I would like to uh, draw this to, in, to something of a cyclical um, conclusion um, where we you know, started a, a, with a focus on, on Alberta. Um, and Jonathan, I know you, you know more about this than I do. If I can uh, get a, a little bit from you on this issue of using fresh water to uh, extract oil and gas. As I understand it, uh, there's oil and gas that is so deep in the ground it's not accessible. So, water is used essentially to to push up to uh, flush out uh, oil and gas to more acceptable levels and i 've heard stats i don 't know if, if, if it's, it 's how well based it is, but for every barrel of oil, uh, five barrels of fresh water are sacrificed for one barrel of oil, and you know we already see with the commodification of water in bottled water that water is actually worth more. You know, fresh water that you buy in the store and bottled in a bottled state is much more expensive than than oil at sixty five dollars a barrel or whatever. Um, so can you talk about what's going on in the province and the uh, use of water in that context and you know who benefits from that and who who ends up taking uh, the cost, the environmental costs How, how are those um, benefits? Those assets and debts, those liabilities and credits, apportioned. Okay. Uh, it
0: always seems like we never have enough time to get into it, and we always just touch on the Three subject. Su- subject. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to go to, go to the document camera real quick. Um, oh. The water crisis results from an, this is from Vandana Shiva. The water crisis results from an erroneous equation of value with monetary price. However, resources can often have very high value if we didn't have much water or we didn't have any water, while having, oh sorry, while having uh, no price, we also have a higher price in that case. Uh, and she talks about sacred sites and and uh, all that. But let's talk about true costing because and differentiate between value and price. Uh, Dr. Hall talked about water being very expensive and being something that that uh, has a price right now, and if it takes five to thirty barrels of water to get one barrel of of oil out and that water is not recoverable and we are gradually you know destroying our water supply, then then what is the value of that water, especially if we're getting out to get some trivial resource like oil out now. Which, which, which apparently, according to the WTO, is no, is uh, water is more valuable than oil in the next war, next wars we fought over it. So, uh, yes, uh, there, there are a few uh, important distinctions between that, and that is that that not necessarily is water fresh that they use to extract the oil. But industries have weird ways of describing and defining things. So water that may have a little bit of salt in it Maybe saline, or water that, that would be relatively easy to treat to become fresh water, may be used. Uh, the rule is that water that is fresh is not used to extract oil. But the difference is marginal between saline and fresh water in some cases. So why, why is it that we're making those kinds of decisions? And I guess it's because right now oil is the, is the big, uh, big guy on the block, and we seem to have lots of water as compared to oil. But, but really, do we? So whenever we're considering any of these factors, uh, we need to look at the true costs of it. And I wanted to touch on one last thing here, whenever we're talking about things, uh, talking about this topic. And that is, how do we measure GDP? Well, if I sell you this pen, and you buy it, and we all do this, and this is multiplied by a million transactions, we are contributing to the gross domestic product of our country, and we are increasing it. If, uh, if we sell oil to some place, then we increase our GDP. But what about the other costs that aren't included in that? What about costs like oil spills? What about costs like, like uh, expropriating all of our water? What about costs like getting rid of all this oil and not having any resource left? Or pumping all of our water and polluting it with the oil into the aquifers, or excuse me, into the reservoirs of oil. What are the costs of that? Well, right now, if there's an oil spill, the GDP increases because someone needs to clean that up. There needs to be people hired. There needs to be a process to clean up the oil spill. It's an environmental disaster that has a cost. right? There are costs of not having fresh drinking water anymore. But if if the GDP is increasing, even though we're polluting and destroying our environment, what does that say about the, the measure of performance? What does that say about measuring GDP? So I wanted to bring the class to a close, I guess, on, on that, that note. And uh, I think we just barely touched the issue. Uh, in Bolivia, uh, Bamba, Bolivia, privatization uh, is happened, and they, they fought it off, and, and they, don't, they, didn't have to worry, they don't have to worry about it now. They own their own water system. Uh, everyone has equal access to it. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, examples I wanted to cover in this class, but uh, we can't get to them all.
2: Why don't you just take three minutes, four minutes, and just, just put uh, your documents, your books, down on the document camera, and just give us a thumbnail of what you wanted to talk about. Sure Give us a picture of the topics we didn't cover that you were hoping to cover.
0: Sure. I, uh, I really wanted to spend a lot of time on, uh, on this book here, Cochabamba: Water War in Bolivia, Cochabamba, Coco- Cochabamba. Cochabamba. Um, because they call them the people there call themselves Coco, Bam- Coco Bambinos or something like that, or Coco Bambinos. But uh, it's by Oscar Liviera, and uh, it's about a Water War in Bolivia. And I really wanted to touch on this book because I thought it would fit into the pedagogical dimensions that Dr. Hall talked about. Like, what do you do if uh, you disagree with something or you have a perspective? How do you fight it? And how do you, how do you challenge these sorts of ideas? Uh, so I wanted to talk about that. Um, this is sort of what was on the bottom of my list. And that was, uh, money makes the world go round. One investor tracks through the global flow of capital. And now, like, with the liquidity of... Uh, with money, it's really easy to uh, take your dollar and put it in the bank, and it ends up doing something in some other country. And the w- speed at which money moves around has a major effect on privatization. And uh, that's one. I wanted to talk about American agricultural uh, failure, and that was that was referring to the aral seed and how american uh, American, uh, and this is an adbusters uh, American here you go. this is a recent one. sorry. How American uh, agriculture in the Southwest is looking a lot like a lot like uh, the Russian failure, which we talked about, growing rice in uh, the desert of uh, of New Mexico. And I, I did want to talk a little bit about, about this book. And not so much that I really wanted to talk a lot about it, as much as that uh, I wanted to talk about how in, how, as a director of a multinational corporation, I owe a duty of care to my shareholders. And they are the ones that I'm responsible to. Not everyone else, but my shareholders. Not society at large, but my shareholders. And the last book I was going to bring up here, I think, well, two of them. Uh, "Earth Dem- Democracy" by Vandana Shiva as well, and she talks about, you, know, activism and how uh, decentralizing things would really uh, decentralizing decision-making um, makes sense. And then I wanted to talk about culture jam. know I can't cut Kyle, Kyle Lassen. I have trouble And he's the, he's
2: the founder of Adbuster.
0: Yeah, he, he's the founder of Adbuster magazine here. And uh, he talks a lot about, you know, we all have, we, Dr. Hall brought up the media and how, how it was, uh, if not necessarily bringing up all the important issues and the important discussions. And so, you know, it falls on other people to make these kinds of decisions and bring up these topics. So I wanted to thank you for uh, everything and paying attention and staying this long. I really do appreciate it. And if you do have any questions, uh, I have a lot of notes from previous classes. I've taken a lot of Dr. Hall's classes, and uh, you can email me. And uh, you know, I have some definitions I've been working on for the past while. You know, closing a river, the Commons, accountability, Aral Sea, bioaccumulation—just these these terms that I had to grapple with with the course. So if you uh, maybe needed some pointers, I could send it on, off to you, and you could. Uh, Targeted divestment campaign, uh, just things that, uh, just terms that I thought have helped me out a lot. Sure, which the last one? Oh, sorry. How's that? And uh, you know, maybe I can. You can do really well on the exam. I don't see why any. These are the people I see every week, so I assume you'll do really great. So, thank you.
2: Okay. Thank you. Thank you.